the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Love. Courage. Truth. Glenn Beck. Alrighty. Florida passed a school safety bill yesterday. Our schools are going to be safe in Florida now. First, let me tell you how the rest of the media is going to report on it, and then I'll tell you what it actually means. Uh, if you're, you know, scrolling through the Internet today, the dominant flash headlines will be Florida passes bill allowing school staff to be armed. OK, the headline's not wrong. The new bill will allow librarians, media specialists, whatever the hell that is, um, advisors and coaches and others to carry a gun on school grounds. Not only does this make schools physically safer, but it also sends a message to any would-be mass murderer that Florida schools are now off limits. You don't know who has a gun. It'll now be in the back of their minds that if they raise their barrel in a school, it's going to be met with multiple barrels aimed back at them. The new bill also provides $300 million in funding for mental health programs school resource officers, and school safety upgrades. Depending on what those things are, that's probably pretty good. This is all great news. But after taking this important step forward, the state of Florida took a gigantic leap backwards. Mixed in with all of the measures that actually will improve school safety, the Florida House of Representatives got to work doing what they really wanted to get out of this crisis, and that is gun control. First of all, the bill restricts firearm purchases for everyone under 21. Oh, geez. I don't even know where to begin on this one. So let's start with the most obvious. How can you approve a bill that nullifies the Second Amendment to anyone aged 18 to 20? I mean, because when you get right down to it, that's what this does. The state of Florida is now saying to their estimated 1 million or so adults in this age bracket that the Bill of Rights does not apply to them. Also, how many mass murderers in the past five years have been under the age of 21? The answer is two. The vast majority are in their upper 20s. By the way, uh, did any of those guys go out and buy those guns? 30 and 40s, 30s and 40s. I, 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 uh, I want to I wanna give them um, any more fuel to crap all over the Second Amendment, but we're not even targeting the right age group. Upper 20s, 30s, and 40s. So to the 18-year-old living on your own and struggling to get by in a really rough neighborhood, Florida has declared that it is safer for you not to be able to protect yourself. If someone breaks into your home and attacks you, don't worry. You only have to call the police and then wait. Or most likely call the police after it's all over and hope that one of your neighbors will call the police. The same applies to the 20-year-old single mother and the 19-year-old veteran who Florida agrees can carry a gun in a war zone, just not really in the state. The bill goes on to require a three-day waiting period to buy all guns, which is completely pointless, and a mandate for background checks, which is already the law. 
Florida took some good steps with allowing teachers to carry guns and allocating money for mental health and security upgrades. But hidden within all of these cries of do something are always these little chunks of freedom that are slowly getting whittled away. If you didn't watch last night's show, it is available on demand now at The Blaze. We showed you how the Constitution is being raped, violently raped, every single one of the 10 Bill of Rights, repeatedly. And we are losing all of our rights. We're losing them because we're all crying something has to be done. You can blame the NRA. You can blame the gun manufacturer. You can blame the school or the sheriff. But in the end... The government blames you because the government is taking your rights away. And if we are not careful, if we don't learn the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, freedom will be a long-forgotten memory soon. It's Thursday, March 8th. This is the Glenn Beck Program. You know, I... I, uh, any foreigner that I know is not concerned about our gun rights. And the reason why is they say it is it's it's never going to happen in America. It'll never happen in America. You guys, this is part of your constitution. It's not part of anybody else's constitution. I think two other countries have it. But it in is Mexico and Guatemala. It is such an important cornerstone of the American constitution and in many countries define us as this. And they're all like, you'll never do that. It'll never happen. You guys, I don't know why you guys are freaked out. It'll never happen. I think it's going to happen. I think they're going to try. All you need is a couple of more school shootings. Uh, let me say this. No, I won't say that. Uh, yeah. I, can, I can easily come up with a way where all of our rights are taken overnight. And we will all be, we will all be chanting for it. And I can 100% guarantee one scenario where the Second Amendment goes away, which is you stop defending it. Yes. The second you stop defending it, they will take every little yes. bit of it. Because, I mean, look, that's their whole, that's the whole goal. I mean, you could tell this by the way they talk about guns. Uh, you know, even when, you know, do we... Oh, I can't take it. I, I can't take we, it. Is this the montage? Do you want to hear this? Okay, yeah. Well, no, I've already heard. No, I don't want to. It is okay, unbelievable. This will make blood shoot out of your eyes. But now, listen. It leads to a larger point, though. Yeah, I, I, I want you to know. You don't have to be a gun expert to have an opinion on the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment applies to all of us, whether you like it or not. So you don't have to be a gun expert. You don't have to be, well, I can tell you that uh, the wind is uh, now blowing from this direction, and so I need to adjust my, you don't. But you do need to know what the argument is. You need to be able to know what a gun is, what it does, how it works. If you're going to join and say, this gun has to be taken out. Why? Can you tell me why? Listen to the media. And and what they say about guns, making sure that we don't have high capacity rapid fire magazines that allow mass killings. Maybe we shouldn't have high magazine clips. Gas assisted receiver firearms. Machine gun magazines. And what sounded like automatic rounds. Seeing if we can get automatic weapons that kill folks in amazing numbers. If I wanted to fire this on full semi-automatic, well, why do we need 
jumbo clips. The best do, do you know what a barrel shroud is? Time. I actually don't know what a barrel oh, shroud is. Okay, because it's in your it's legislation. shoulder thing that goes up. <laughs> no, it's not. What the District of Columbia <laughs> was trying to do was to protect toddlers from guns. It is harder to buy cough medicine than it is to buy an AK-47 or 50 of them. It is easier for a teenager to buy a Glock than get his hands on a computer or even a book. It's legal to hunt humans with 15 round, 30 round, even 150 round magazines. And he was not able to buy a weapon that shoots off 700 rounds in a minute. Pistols are different. You have to pull the trigger each time. An assault weapon, you basically hold it, goes blah, blah, blah. It's not true. No, those are fully automatic weapons. Okay. This right here okay. has ability with a 30 caliber clip to disperse with 30 bullets within half a second. Use these silencers really? to make them more available, wow. which as you because can the imagine, hunters, their ears were hurting. If you want to protect yourself, get a double barrel shotgun. Put that double barrel shotgun and fire two blasts outside the house. If you ban them in the future, the number of these high capacity magazines is going to decrease dramatically over time because the bullets will have been shot and there won't be any more available. But some of these bullets, as you saw, have an incendiary device on the tip of it, which is a heat-seeking device. So you don't oh shoot deer God. with a bullet that size. If you do, you could cook it at the same time. But that deer oh. deserves to get away. Let's get serious here. Boom! <laughs> Oh my gosh! That a is... heat-seeking bullet. I've, <laughs> I've never. I want some of those heat-seeking bullets. Huh? That's an inexplicable oh montage by the Washington Free Beacon. I, the fact that those clips exist is so embarrassing. And we're arguing with these people about the Second Amendment. It's, it's amazing. And well, it, first of all, you know, the, but this is if I want to turn this into a full semi-automatic weapon, <laughs> it either is or it isn't a semi-automatic weapon. You don't turn it from a, a John Wayne six-shooter into a semi-automatic full means i'm going to clip it now i'm going to i'm going to uh, push it into the fully automatic which means now i hold the trigger down and it's a machine gun those are illegal when when uh, in this clip where uh, obama is saying we we need to get rid of these automatic weapons we've gotten rid of the automatic weapons we there's there's a ban on those you have to have I mean, it takes you a long time. It took me a year to be able to go through uh, the process to get the license to be able to have a fully automatic weapon. It is probably the ones I have are probably eight hundred dollar guns. I paid over twenty thousand dollars for each of them. I have two of them. I I want to fire them because they're fun. I don't fire them because the laws around them are so strict that I'm afraid any time I touch that gun or take that gun or somebody, God forbid, is going to touch that gun, that I go to prison. So we've already pretty much taken care of those guns. You notice that the bad guys have stopped getting those? No. You know why? Because you can make one if you're really, if you're, if you're handy, if you can, if you can just um, read a book, and you're good with tools, you can find somebody or make it fully automatic. You can do it. You'll also go to prison 
But I don't think the guys who are either the the choice is I'm gonna I I know somebody who can make one of these for me and just gonna keep it quiet because I'm a drug dealer, or <laughs> I'm just gonna go buy one. I don't care if it costs me a hundred thousand dollars because I'm a drug dealer. Yeah, a guy in, uh, I think it was California just got arrested because he had built several weapons. Like yes. he was banned from having them. Yes, but he had built them himself. Yes, uh, because that's you know in reality. today's in today's world with technology, you don't have to be a gunsmith. No, to do it. But again. Going to the arguments here, you know, when you pat, when you're asking us to take you seriously, when you go for a semi-automatic uh, assault rifle ban, you don't have to. I am not a gun nerd. I know. I mean, I, I we have had this happen before, and it is frustrating. I will say because there's a there was a there's an op-ed in the Washington Post, and they were like, oh, the, people are just gunsplaining to you. So you bring up an argument and they, they just pick apart all the things that you said that were wrong about the details of the guns and that's not important. That's the left's new argument because they don't know anything about guns. They've given up trying to act as if they do. And now the argument is stop acting like I can't have an opinion because oh, you know okay. more about guns okay. than I do. Okay, all right. Then you know what? I'm going to stop. I want you to stop acting like I have no right to opinions on race because I'm white. Right. I want yes. you to stop telling me that I have no opinions on abortion because I'm a man. All right, it, you can't have it both course, ways. It's ridiculous. But I don't agree with that. Right, I don't, I don't agree. Either. You can't have opinions. You don't have. So to, you can. But you wait. You can have an opinion yeah. on the Second Amendment, but you cannot make the case about a certain gun being banned if you don't know anything about that certain gun. Yeah, no, it's true. And what's interesting about it is there is one time where you can. I believe you can make an argument. Uh, when you don't know anything about the difference between semi-automatic and automatic or handguns and shotguns and, 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 and assault Or if rifles. you're the vice president, say, take your shotgun out and fire a couple shots in the air. Yeah. It's illegal yeah. to do that. You, if you were an NRA member, you'd know that, Joe. You'd know that. You'd know that. But you know when it is okay to have that opinion? And you know when it doesn't matter when you know the difference between semi-automatic and automatic guns? When you're actually going after all guns. You don't need to know the difference between semi-automatic and automatic if you're going for all of them. If your real argument is take them all away, then there's no need to learn about the differences and why uh, they are there and how they would be used and what effects they would have. Because in reality, that's what they're arguing. They're, they know they can't get it right now. They're looking for progressive steps towards the removal of all of them. So there's no need for them to know the difference because okay. is it a gun or not is the only fact they need. Does it kill people? Is it a gun? You don't need that kind of gun. By the way, I just want to remind you that the assault rifle is actually a modern sporting rifle. It was not a weapon of war that was brought onto the market. It was a hunting rifle in the 1950s, in the 1950s, that, that the Pentagon saw and went, that's just a better rifle. We, can, can, we buy, can we buy the rights to that and be able to make these for the military? Yes, they were on the market as deer rifles, as hunting rifles, a decade before they went to Vietnam. So, please... Stop with this is a weapon of war. This is a modern sporting rifle.
you know, there's a couple of things we have to do. I, I want to take I want to take people to the range with me. Uh, if you are afraid of guns, if you are somebody who, you know, I just don't know where I stand on this. I, I, I'm afraid of guns. I want to and we'll 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 try to come up with a way to do this tomorrow and have you call in tomorrow. Uh, but I want to take some people to gun to, to fire guns who have never done it before, because unless you fired them, unless you know you, you, you have no concept, no concept of the sport of rifles, the sport of guns, and how they actually can save your life, not just kill people. Also, uh, if you watched the push last night, we gave you a homework assignment. If you watch the push. Call us now, 888-727-BECK. I want to switch gears and talk about the push. We'll do that right now. Tax season is in full swing. Some experts are saying now that filing your taxes early prevents identity theft. Don't listen to them. That doesn't happen. Identity theft it can happen whether you file your taxes early or not. If somebody has stolen your information, if it is out there, it can be used in other ways, like opening a credit card in your name. Anything, anything that is out there on you is being sold on the dark web. And your info, if it's part of a breach, don't get too comfortable just because you filed your taxes early. Many threats out in today's world because we're all connected and it takes one hack, one break in the chain and everything is out. That's why the new LifeLock Identity Theft Protection adds power of Norton Security to help you protect against the threats uh, against your identity, also your devices. Now, nobody can stop all cyber threats, prevent all identity theft, or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But Norton uh, and the new LifeLock Security is able to uncover the threats that you might miss. So go to LifeLock.com right now or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use the promo code BECK at an extra 10% off your first year. That's promo code BECK, extra 10% at 1-800-LIFELOCK or LifeLock.com. Glenn Beck Mercury. Glenn Beck. There's a lot to uh, talk about today, a lot to cover. We, we have, coming up in a little while, we have Ryan Holiday. He wrote a book uh, called Conspiracy um, that is really fascinating uh, about one of the uh, I think bigger news stories uh, of the day coming up in a little while. Also um, at the top of uh, hour number three, we are going to talk a little bit about free trade and the, just the principles behind free trade. Why is this a conservative principle? Is it real? Is it, is it easy to win a trade war? What's the history behind that? And why is this an important thing for conservatives? Um, We'll uh, we'll deal with those coming up in a minute. Also, yesterday we talked about the push. Yeah, a lot of people watched it. Uh, I like uh, Justin says. I, luckily, I was socially compliant and watched the push. Now Glenn <laughs> can spoil it. Uh, um, I like that. And also uh, another tweet um, at World of Stew is where you can tweet these. Uh, I'm watching push and cannot believe this. It's blowing my freaking mind. I'm so embarrassed for him. I can't even look at the screen half the time. It's it is <laughs> it is terrifying now let me before we start taking your phone calls on what you learned from it or what you thought it is a it's a social experiment except it's it's man it's borderline reality show too you know to where it was done uh i think in a in a 
uh, scientific way, can you take an average person and convince them to murder a stranger in 90 minutes? Not somebody that is somebody just like you. Can you get them to murder a stranger in 90 minutes? And the results are shocking. People who watch The Push on Netflix, call us now. We're going to take your phone calls next. Glenn Beck, Mercury. You're listening to the Glenn Beck program. All right. So The Push is something on Netflix. It was created by a, uh, a psychologist who is also a, a magician uh, in uh, England, and he does social experiments. And this is a one episode. It's not a series. It's just one episode. It's called The Push on Netflix. And it's a documentary, kind of. Um, it's, it's a cross between a documentary and a, a reality show. Yeah. It's, a, it's an uncomfortable mix. Um, but what, what he's doing is, can we convince somebody, the average person, to murder in 90 minutes and they start the episode with a uh with a phone call into a restaurant where a woman is sitting with a a baby stroller and a baby and they somebody from the restaurant just picks up and they say hey is this uh, so-and-so's restaurant yes do you see a woman with a baby carriage yes we're the police that baby is not hers we need you to distract her Get the baby, tell her that, that somebody's waiting for her on the phone, put the phone away, grab the baby carriage, push it out of the restaurant, meet me at the corner. Okay, so he, they convince in three minutes, they convince somebody to steal someone's baby just because she's a I'm known the, child abductor, but she right. wasn't. She wasn't. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're only taking the word of a stranger on the phone that he is the police. Okay, it's fascinating. Um, so then they say, all right, but what we're going to try to do is a lot harder. And I think they have 90 actors and 90 minutes. Everybody's in on it except this one person. They do it to four different people you find out. Uh, and the idea is, can we create a social situation just through social pressure to get these people to actually push a stranger off the top of a building in 90 minutes and kill them? It is unbelievable one of the most shocking things i've ever seen can we give some uh, classroom guidelines here Glenn? yes okay so uh we gave you homework yesterday to watch mm-hmm. the show yes um if you didn't do your homework that's going to be a problem however uh it won't because it'll make you want to watch this even more yeah that's true um but uh if you are on the phone and you're calling in we don't want to give away the end of the episode yeah i mean we can talk about what happened in it yeah, yeah, but we don't, don't want to say the end. did anybody push or not push right we don't want to. We don't give that away. Don't but give that away. The rest of it, I think, is generally speaking, fair game. Um, if you uh, are super, you know, if you're going to watch it tonight, you might want to think about. Uh, we're going to try to be as careful as we can, but yeah, like, we're we not going to. As long as we don't, it's fascinating. Even if you know all the way along, because the way they pulled this off is really remarkable. And you're asking yourself the whole question: Would I do that? Would I do that? Because it starts small. Mm-hmm. Would you do it still? Absolutely not. No. Where, how far along would you go? I mean, 
the first one is funny for me because yeah, it's a vegetarian, vegetarian and and uh, it's that's what they do they put real meat hot dogs in the, and then they put flags that say they're vegetarian in them because they don't have right. the vegetarian hot dogs even that i wouldn't do because but that's just a weird one for me yeah i this, think this, in a normal situation people would do that right. this whole situation is somebody is trying to help out this massive charity well known everybody who's anybody is involved um and they're helping out the the main person um, and their boss is the one who hooked them up into this. And so the first thing is they're in the kitchen and like, geez, man, the meat didn't, the, the vegetarian meat didn't show up. These are just real hot dogs. Just, just put the vegetarian signs on this. That's the first compliance. And it's breaking down your, your will and getting you to comply little pieces at a time to build to 90 minutes. You're going to kill somebody because we're asking you to do it. <laughs> And it's amazing. I'm very interested to see where people feel that they might bail out of it and were they disturbed by this show. So I think the worst of me, the best of me stops at the vegetarian because I think that can make people sick. You know, you're a vegetarian and you might have health reasons for doing that. Right. I, I, I hope the best of me says I stop there. Mm-hmm. The worst of me says I stop somewhere between giving the speech. Right. <laughs> Hopefully I don't give the speech and uh, and moving the body to the stairwell I, yeah. I i don't think i get to the stairwell i and i i think i think i i could get to the point where i put them in a box outside of that i don't think i could go any further this is an amazing thing yeah. mm-hmm. okay so we go to jeff in chicago hello jeff good morning what were your, what morning, were your thoughts well two pieces to this glenn first of all the, the show is incredibly disturbing um, I found myself watching this and, and thinking in my head, I wouldn't do that. But then when you replay and you think the situation the gentleman's been put in, in balancing this overall good of this, this charitable, yeah. donation, massive charitable donation to, you know, can I just do this to get to the overall good? And, and what I found myself wondering is, which percentages do these folks fall in about attending church, right? (laughs) (laughs) From yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. From yesterday. What's what's the constant moral north that was guiding these individuals, right? Because that's the ultimate balance here. And uh, I'll throw this at you because I'm not, I don't have the perfect uh, tinfoil hat that you do, but I'm I'm trying. (laughs) Uh, A second show that I'll turn you, turn you on to that I would suggest you overlay with the push. Uh, Carrie Byron, formerly of Mythbusters. Uh, Okay. The, the three of them started a show on Netflix entitled White Rabbit Project. Now, it's a series, but you only need to watch the first episode. In this first episode, they try to replicate superpowers, and they find a gentleman who successfully took a living cockroach and turned it into a cyborg that she could control with her telephone. Tell this live cockroach when to walk left, when to walk right. The ultimate conclusion of it was the scientist who did this was able to put electrodes on his arm bridge them by a wire to electrodes on her arm and he could move her arm for her whether she wanted to or not what but it was all fake it was all real <laughs> all right all right, all right. We'll now watch i got it. another we'll stupid thank you don't watch don't add any shows to don't worry you can't <laughs> assign the teacher one. homework uh let's go to justin in tennessee hello justin hey glenn um hey. My wife and I watched the show last night, and I was initially really disturbed and was thinking I would never do this stuff, especially once it got to putting the body in the crate. That was where I was like, I definitely wouldn't do that. I've always prided myself as being a critical thinker and being willing to stand up and challenge things. 
But then I started thinking about my story. I, as a teenager, I was a hardcore Republican. I moved into libertarianism and then uh, Christian anarchism, which is a whole other thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that is a whole other thing. A, yeah. And you can't assign me homework on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Tolstoy. Tolstoy is a Christian anarchist. Anyway, I'm st- I still consider myself that. But as I moved into that, I realized I was, I was kind of more aligned with folks on the left. Um, and I still occasionally would push back. But over the last probably 2014 to 2016, I was very much, I, I would even consider myself, I'd gotten to the point of being a social justice warrior. Mm. And sometime in 2016, I finally realized that I'm not thinking for myself anymore. And mm. so watching this, I was like, this same sort of thing has happened to me in different ways. Yeah. I, I don't know that I would... Yeah, yeah I, I will tell you, and I don't want to tell how people, uh, you know, what they did at the end, but I thought it was really interesting, the interviews with those subjects afterwards um, who uh, who talked and said, uh, you know, I have to rethink everything in my life. I, I mean, I, I don't think that's where you would land you uh, would, uh, after you would. that experience. And, and if you take this and you and you really watch this and you look at it as a science experiment <clears throat> and you also have if you've ever read Ordinary Men. Uh, which is a uh, a real deep scholarly look at how the Nazis turned the pol the Polish um, uh, the really good men uh, who were police officers into brutal killers. It's the same story. It's exactly the same story. And so you kind of wonder, geez, would I do that or not? Let me go to uh, Cliff in West Virginia. Hello, Cliff. Let me go to Kim, let me go to Kim in North Carolina. Kim, are you there? Hi, Kim. Hi, guys. Hi. Uh, yeah, I saw it last night, and it was disturbing, honest and true. Um, I started watching it, and like you said earlier, I kept asking myself, would I do that? Would I go this far? Would I go this far? And I really don't think I would have gotten any for it. Once, once they took him out of the crate and put him at the stairwell, <laughs> yeah, that's when I would have said, sorry, I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. Can't do yeah. this. Did you did you was, did you feel like uh, it was morally okay for them to make that show? I, I'm very conflicted um, on that question. I I in a way I think it 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 is because it will open people's eyes to to realizing that we aren't as um oh we're we're, we're not we're, we're not as strong as we think vulnerable. we are yeah, yeah exactly we're not we're a lot more vulnerable than we think we are yeah than, you know than, than we like to be. Um, when you yeah, said when I, you said you found it disturbing, I found it the same way. But it's different than like a horror movie that you're like, okay, right. saw that was disturbing. <laughs> there's, there's no right. there's no re, there's no, no redeeming value yeah. in it. This was disturbing because in a good way because it it made me examine me. It made me it put me into a very uncomfortable situation. Going, geez, I don't know. Would I do that? <laughs> Would you agree with that, Kim? All through the show, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I kept asking myself all through that, would I do that? What would I do if I, if I was that that guy? You know, how how far would I have gotten? And I mean, he kept saying no, no, and then he'd eventually yeah. do it. And I'm like, why are you doing that? You know, it's uncomfortable. You know, it's wrong. Why are you doing that? But at the same point, I'm sure all of us have our limits. It's really. And, you know yeah kim thank you for your call it, it really is interesting because it's not just the social pressure i mean the social pressure really comes in towards the end but it's not just the social pressure it is the the pressure of ends justify the means mm-hmm. this is such a good and if i don't do this 
it, it won't be good. It's it, too important. It's too it's important. It's too important. I have to do this. I know I'm bending my principles, but this time it's too important. Um, quickly, just to review, we're talking about The Push. It's a Netflix show. If you haven't seen it, moderate spoilers are sort of applying here. We're not giving away the ending or no, anything no, no. like that, but we and are you'll still enjoy it. it even if you... You'll, yes, absolutely. The but, idea is, um, would you would you kill somebody <laughs> in 90 minutes? Can they take average people and, um, and, and, and in 90 minutes later, they've become a, a cold blooded killer. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to hear every caller has said the same thing. They'll go a little bit down this road, but I know I would have stopped here. I know I would have stopped here. What I found interesting about it was, you know, I guess people, we are really more vulnerable than we thought. And I find that to be interesting because aren't the, the same people who were in this situation on the show likely would have sounded just like the callers and us who would yeah. say we would have stopped at this point yeah um but also kind of judging others and saying like hey you know uh, we are more vulnerable and that's the underlying i think message here there there is an underlying message of the show which is really informative for everything everything that you do in your life which is you really need to have these decisions made before you get to a stressful point. Because when you get into the stressful moment, human beings will follow the path of least resistance way too often. You better have principles that stop you and, and the, each time. And the answer would be every single time with these four people. And it may have been, <clears throat> it may be this in the end that all four said, no, I won't kill. All four may have said, I will kill. But if you would have asked them at the beginning of the night, hey, will you murder this person? No way. No way. No way. They would have laughed. They would have walked away. No way. It's just that they had made compromises starting as small as putting a flag in a vegetarian uh, in a non-vegetarian dish Mm -hmm. that said vegetarian. It's the small little compromises all the way. And that's the thing you read in if you read Ordinary Men. It didn't happen. They didn't just they didn't just all say, "Okay, I'm a good cop now to I can just shoot children in Mm. the head in the middle of the woods and put them in a big burial uh, mound. It didn't go that way. It was small little things that they needed to get them to violate one at a time. And we're in this together. I really do want to have more of a conversation on is it morally right to do this as a almost as a reality show it wasn't but it was so close to a reality show it was really it's uncomfortable uh, but I think important to watch all right if you're looking to hire somebody you need great people no better way to find them than with zip recruiter zip recruiter uh, know, knew that there was a smarter way and smarter is the is the key word here they built a platform that finds the right job candidate for you. Now, the thing in the past was, okay, well, I can go online and I can post my job. Got it. ZipRecruiter then took that in the next step and said, all right, I can post, I can post it at every place that there is job postings. And that took a lot of you know, time uh, and frustration off of your hands and put it into ZipRecruiter. Then they realize there's got to be a smarter way. So what they do is the ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for. It identifies people with the right experience and then goes out and says, hey, there's a job available. You should apply for this. 
The invitations have revolutionized how you're going to find your next hire. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate in the site the first day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are there. ZipRecruiter is how you're going to find them. ZipRecruiter, been used by businesses of all sizes and industries. Find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results right now. Post for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Beck. ZipRecruiter.com slash Beck. Glenn Beck Mercury. Glenn Beck. Isn't it amazing how, how, how influenced we are by, by others and how we all, like at the very beginning of the uh, show on Netflix, The Push, they they select people or they disqualify people that could you know be part of this experiment by just getting them to go into a room with three actors everybody nobody knows their actors um and they go in with these actors uh and they're just filling out an application for something nobody's talking they're just all working and they're standing by these chairs when the bell rings the three actors sit down then does the person who they're trying to figure out can be on the show. Will he sit down or not? And then when the bell rings twice, they stand up. Bell rings, sit down, stand up, sit down. It's amazing how many people do that. And are we doing that now on social media? Are we just hearing the bell ring and we see a story, we see a reaction, we hear a bell ring and we go to social media and we react the way the crowd is reacting? Glenn Beck Mercury Love Courage Truth Glenn Beck Political activism has infected one of the most important institutions in America. Yes, McDonald's. Since today is International Women's Day, McDonald's in California, has flipped its golden arches upside down to resemble W. Get it? M, which is bad, because man, it starts with an M like McDonald's. He turned upside down, and now it's woman. Wow. Another W word. McDonald's is, uh, you know, is... uh, is following uh, following suit with all the digital platforms? Uh, you know, maybe I'm I'm crazy, but I think this is just a you know a cheap publicity stuff. I don't think there's there's not a single woman that I know or respect that would be driving by and going, you know what? Suddenly, I am going to have that quarter pounder with cheese. They respect me. I mean, they employ women at all levels. Many of the customers are women. Many of the customers are not women. You know, they make sure that they have boy boy and girl-centric Happy Meal toy options. I mean, do we need to really celebrate women even more? <gasps> How about we get a transgendered Ronald McDonald? And Grimace has always been. I don't know if that's a man or a woman. He is. He's cis-neutral. <laughs> Anyone with a brain cell knows this is a pandering marketing campaign. And it's working. Everyone is covering it. But will it do anything? I mean, does anybody think, oh, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to fight for that that uh, gender inequality in our society because McDonald's has turned their sign upside down. 
I'm guessing it's not going to sell an extra hamburger. I'm just guessing no. I would argue that McDonald's already does a great job at eradicating inequality between the sexes. We're all equal when we pull up to that drive-thru and that window late at night and embarrassingly bark out an order and ask for two Big Macs and large fries, something that all of our mothers would have said, do not eat that crap. We do it, male or female, and we all feel the same shame. It's Thursday, March 8th. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Do the ends justify the means? Are there real white hats and black hats anymore? Can you actually be a white hat taking down a black hat if you've done them in nefarious ways? Are you wearing a gray hat or are you wearing a black hat? There are so many things today that uh, we'd all like to see, you know, dishonest, bad media go away and collapse on its own weight. We, we might even cheer when something like Gawker, which was a despicable website, when Gawker went out of business and uh, had to shut down, we might all cheer. However, are we comfortable with the idea that a billionaire can conspire and make that happen, even though the end is good? Ryan Holiday. Uh, is uh, is an author. He wrote a great book called Trust Me, I'm Lying, which is a mm. fantastic read to go back to see how the news you see every day gets to you. It's a f- it's a it's sausage. Uh, yeah, you it's incredible. Wanna, you'll find teeth yeah. and shoes in it. <laughs> you have to read that. Uh, the new book is Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. Uh, and it's it brings us through this entire story. And Ryan joins us now. So, Ryan, can you can you... S- Tell this story like only you can. Tell this story before we get into what we are supposed to learn from it. Well, it's, it's an almost unbelievable story. Uh, in 2007, Gawker Media, a gossip website in New York City, uh, has a Silicon Valley arm called Valleywag, and they out the Silicon Valley investor, Peter Thiel, as gay. He's at that point uh, the founder of PayPal. He was an early investor in Facebook, but a relatively unknown person whose sexuality was known to his friends, but he was not publicly gay. Um, he's, he's humiliated by this. He's frustrated by it. He's hurt. Gawker's headline, I believe, was Peter Thiel is totally gay people. So imagine your most sensitive you know, secret being made public in such a flippant way. And he, he, he finds this uh, not to be illegal, but to be disgusting. And now, hang, hang on just a second. Uh, Ryan, when, when this happens with Gawker, is this... Uh, because I find Gawker despicable. They, they've done things to me and my family that are just despicable. Sure. Um, but on this, people were saying, well, uh, you know, we should out people because that's only going to make, you know, people more comfortable with, you know, with gay people if they know you're around them all the time. So were they using the ends justify the means at that time to do something good or are they just dirtbags? I think it's a, I think it's a little bit of both, right? I think they thought, uh, why should he get to keep this secret? And, and, and I think they also thought, why, is it, why should it be a secret? It, this isn't something to be ashamed of. Okay. But the truth is, he didn't want it to be public, and I believe that's his prerogative. Yeah, it's, it's his story to tell, not anybody else's. 
And, uh, and so he sort of despairs of being able to do anything about it for five years. He just sort of sits on this. Uh, he's frustrated. He's hurt by it. Uh, but he can't do anything about it. And uh, it's, it's only um, in 2012 when Gawker makes, an- makes another enemy. They run a illegally recorded sex tape of the professional wrestler Hulk Hogan, uh, that Teal sees the opportunity that he's been looking for this whole time, that he'd been looking for. He'd hired a lawyer to, to spot opportunities like this. He approaches Hulk Hogan and he says, look, what they did to you is not only despicable, I think it's illegal both federally and in Florida where you're a resident. I will fund this. Teal approaches him through an intermediary. This is totally in secret. I will fund this case as far as you're willing to take it. And he approaches a number of other people who have similar cases. And then uh, for, for, for the next four years, this case winds its way through the legal system. And he eventually wins a, a $140 million bankruptcy-inducing verdict against Gawker in Florida to the shock of, of all onlookers and, and legal strategists at the time. And, and he achieves that thing that he had set out to do in 2007, which was to both get his revenge and to prevent this, uh, this website that he believed to be evil from doing what it did to people. So wow. he, I, I know, Peter, he is a very, you know, generally quiet uh, guy. Um, uh, you know, he, he's, he's, a, he's an odd duck. Um, sure. he's, a, he's a really nice guy. Uh, doesn't seem like a guy who's driven by vengeance, but does sound like a guy or fe- feels like a guy who will take all the time necessary <laughs> in the world. He is not in any hurry. He'll wait until it's right. Well, that's what's so brilliant about what he did. I think most of us, when something is done to us, we react, we, we respond, right? A fight breaks out. A conspiracy, to me, is more something that brews, that develops. And that's what was so brilliant about Peter. He, didn't, he said, look, what they did to me I don't think was right, and I'm, I'm, I'm angry about it. But it's never good to be driven by anger. And so instead, he stepped back. He never forgot what happened, but he looked for an opportunity where he actually had legal, legal ground to stand on, where he actually could have an impact where the public would be so universally repulsed by what these people did that he would have a shot at, at making a difference. And so I think both that patience and that ability to be strategic is why he was able to solve a problem, if that's what you want to call it, that many other powerful people had looked at and said, basically, there's nothing you can do about this. But he didn't do, did he become the thing that he despised? I don't get the impression that he did. He 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 did this on the up and up. The only thing, the reason why it's a conspiracy is he didn't want to be out front. But now that it's known, he doesn't mind. I mean, he's owning it now. Sure. I, look, I think secrecy is a fundamental element of a conspiracy, and and I and I respect that he was willing to see that the optics of a billionaire being publicly in front of this thing completely changes how the public would look at it. But he, you know, he said to me, he got this advice from one of his friends. He, uh, his friend said, Peter, you, know, you have to choose your enemies carefully because you become just like them. And so that's really the, the danger of you know, spending nine years scheming to destroy or uh, ruin someone or something, is that you study them so much, they consume so much uh, of your mental bandwidth that you can kind of become like them. 
I'm, I don't think that he became anything like uh, Gawker, but, um, for instance, there's a seminal moment in jury selection where they notice that overweight female jurors are the most sympathetic to their case. And now that's not uh, disgusting, but there is an element of unpleasantness in selecting a juror to then exploit their most vulnerable body issue. But don't, don't you think that that... That that's mm. done in the court system every day of the week. Well, I, I agreed, but my my point is, I I think we we tend to be idealist yes. idealists about change. We think yes. that yes. we can we can make change without getting our hands dirty or without dealing with some of this unpleasantness. Yes, and so there's compromises in pursuing mm. something of this magnitude. And I think Peter was so committed to what he was uh, doing that he he felt that 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 end did justify, that means did justify the end. Mm. So Ryan has spent a lot of time with Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel, this is not an anti-Peter Thiel book. This is Peter works side by side. Uh, he had unprecedented access to Peter. Uh, and uh, while Peter didn't, I don't think, Ryan, unless there's another conspiracy, he didn't fund this book. Uh, no, no. He just gave <laughs> he just gave access. More with Ryan Holiday. The book is Conspiracy. And there are some tough questions that we have to ask ourselves more in a minute. With volatility in the stock market, wild swings in Bitcoin, the constant turmoil in Washington. Have you noticed the price of gold lately? Gold is up and it has lots of room to run. And that is for several reasons. When things go unstable, gold is always the safe haven. When in when interest rates go up. Gold is a safe haven. When inflation goes up, gold is a safe haven. All of those things are happening right now, and that's why gold is up. Nobody that I know that is, you know, has half a brain cell is an all-in person on gold. Yeah, take it, get it all out, put it. It, it. You know, you have an IRA. You have some in, you know, maybe in stocks. You have some in the bank. You have some in gold. You diversify because as some things go down, other things go up. Right now, gold's going up. Don't listen to me for investment advice. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a guy that's qualified to give you that. I am a guy who buys gold myself as an insurance policy. The insurance against a world gone insane. Gold line. I want you to call them right now. If you've been thinking about adding to your IRA right now, gold line is offering $750 in free coins when you purchase 25,000 or more with their industry leading express IRA program. So call them now. 866 gold line, one gold line or goldline.com. Glenn Beck Mercury. Glenn Beck. We're with Ryan Holiday. He is the author of a book called Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. Uh, it's a really, it's a very tough question that we have to tackle, but I want to get a couple of more facts out of the way here before we do with Ryan. Ryan, a couple of things that have been picked up from the book. One thing uh, that Peter had conversations uh, about his strategy trying to get Gawker to go away. Mm-hmm. And they discussed, at least seemingly, and it comes off a little flippantly, but at least considered doing things that were actually illegal uh, when it comes to the uh, yeah, what approach. Was the, uh, what was the example, Stu? Uh, well, uh, I'm sure, uh, I'm yeah. sure uh, Ryan can walk us through the examples. I don't have them in front of me. What, what, sure. 
Go ahead, Ray. It, it struck me as a little bit of a tempest in a teapot, the media coverage, because it's like yeah. getting in trouble for thinking about speeding and then not speeding. Yeah. But, you know, if you think about Teal's position, he, he, he finds Gawker to be this great evil. He's trying to do something about it. But as a billionaire, he has essentially limitless resources. He's also the majority owner of one of the most powerful intelligence and defense companies on the planet. So he has these immense resources. And so it's a question then of, which of them is he going to use and what limitations is he going to impose on himself? So theoretically, could he hire private detectives to uh, follow Gawker writers and attempt to find dirt on them that would be embarrassing? Could he start a rival website that would focus nothing but nothing on their personal lives? Could he uh, bribe employees to leak information to him? Could he could he lobby politicians to go after them? Like, there's many things that he could do, but what he decides actually early on, after sort of laying all these options out on the table, is that he, that he wants only to do what's legal and ethical because he's, he's both, uh, I think, an ethical and, and moral person, but also because at some point your involvement is made public. At some point you, you win, and then the public looks at what you did and they judge you for this, right? Mm-hmm. And so his belief was that if they, if they accomplished this thing they were trying to accomplish with unethical or illegal means, the, the, the victory wouldn't stand. And it would also be, as we were talking about earlier, it would be Pyrrhic in the sense that it would come at a great cost to himself because he would have had to become the thing that he was trying to change in the first place. I, I have to tell you, I, I am, uh, you know, this is, this is kind of being spun as an anti-Peter Thiel book. And, and just that alone speaks volumes. I mean, there, I don't know how many billionaires there are that would have the self-control that he had to say, no, I, I want to do it. I want to do it the right way. Can you tell me anything? Because you have an exclusive um, in this about a guy named Mr. A. What is, who, who, I know you're not going to tell me who, but what is Mr. A's role? Well, that's the, the, one of the weirdest twists of this story, this incredibly well-covered story. I think people thought, I guess myself included, thought like Peter Thiel was involved on, the, on a day-to-day basis. And, 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 in fact, he sort of follows the startup model, which is in 2011 he has, uh, he has dinner with this promising young college graduate who, who has told Peter he has an idea, and they sit down to dinner. And, and this kid says, Peter, I think I can solve your Gawker problem. I think that buried in their archive of posts are uh, illegal uh, acts or acts that, that make them vulnerable to, to civil judgments. And I think, he says, if you give me $10 million in three to five years of time, I think I can make something happen here. And basically, on the spot, Peter invests in this kid. And this wow. kid is Peter's go-between, his operative who, ha- who, who hires the attorneys, who, who vets the cases, who makes the decisions day to day. And Peter is, is, is in, in the way that Peter puts $500,000 in Mark Zuckerberg's hands and he goes and makes Facebook, Mr. A goes and makes this conspiracy a reality. So what do you, what do you wow. think Mr. A is going to be doing now? Well, I would imagine when you solve a problem for a billionaire like this, the world is sort of your oyster from that point forward. Uh, I think he's got basically limitless options now and has one patron who's probably willing to back him on any project under any condition. Holy cow. What was Peter's motivation 
in uh, cooperating with you, Ryan, on this book? Well, as I'm sure you guys have seen, just seeing the coverage and now talking to me, this is a story that has been intensely covered, but with such bias and such sort of tribal instincts on behalf of the media, because the media sees what happened to, happens to Gawker, and they think, oh, that could happen to us. Let's circle the wagons. So there's been this incredible amount of judgment about what's happened. And I think that's greatly impacted the coverage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, to, to such a degree that Peter has, has become, in many people's eyes, this sort of James Bond villain. And that's really not what he is no. when you, when I mean, you look, meet him and you see what he did and why he did it. Uh, and so I think, you know, I'd written critically about Gawker many times, you know, myself, uh, my emails were once hacked and leaked to Gawker. And so I, I know what that feeling is like. So I was willing to at least be fair. You know, I told Peter, look, you're not going to get to see the book before it's printed. You're not going to have any impact, input on it. I'm going to play it down the middle. But I think he at least believed that I would play it down the middle yeah. rather than, you know, holding him up as the villain if that wasn't true. So, Ryan, there's, there's, um, if, I'm just trying to think this through. If a billionaire, let's say George Soros, who is not a friend of mine, um, <laughs> if he decided to um, to go after me, and yeah. I was doing some, the Blaze was doing things that 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 were blatantly illegal, and I don't mean you know death by a million paper cuts, what a billionaire could do. I don't think sure. I would have. I don't think I would have sympathy for Peter. If he had just been paper cut after paper cut, technicality after technicality, just keep him right. in court and bleed him dry. I don't think this is a problem for the First Amendment if they're going after things that are really, truly illegal and they're big. And I'd like to get your response on that uh, when we come back. What does this mean for the First Amendment that a billionaire can mark somebody and then take them out? Is that good for the Republic when we come back? Glenn Beck Mercury. This is the Glenn Beck program. I am uh, I'm currently on a, <laughs> a couple week rant of we've got to do something and how that always leads to bad things. <laughs> You just don't make good decisions when you're angry, upset, emotionally. We've got to do something. It usually also means I'll, I'll violate my principles because I want this pain to stop. So what are our principles? I, uh, I, don't, I didn't like Gawker. Uh, Gawker did some things that were dangerous uh, for my family. Um, I thought they were despicable people. Um, and I did wish them to go out of business. Um, but... Uh, I wouldn't have done anything to get them to go out of business. And I like the way Peter Thiel did this. He waited in to see, is there something that they have done that breaks the law? When they had Hulk Hogan, they, that, that was an illegally recorded tape. And for what? what? What was the purpose of exposing that? So Peter took them to court on that. The problem is, is he's a billionaire, has unlimited sources, and are we setting a precedent that that somebody who has an axe to grind 
can put another company out of business. One man can put a media company out of business if they want to. Are we? Did anybody learn that lesson in a negative way? Ryan is with us. Ryan Holiday is the author of the book Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the uh, Anatomy of, of Intrigue. What have you come to, Ryan, on that? Well, it, that is the big question, and it, it is potentially scary to think that a billionaire could shut a media outlet down. And then when you step back, you know, your point about not reacting emotionally, well, did Peter actually do anything new that doesn't happen every day anyway, right? The ACLU, the Sierra Club, uh, the NRA, they, they back cases all the time that they think uh, move their ideology forward or stands up for one of their con- constituents. And so the idea of a wealthy person backing a lawsuit, not out of financial gain, but out of ideological alignment, is actually, you know, not remotely new. And if you were to ban it, society would undoubtedly become a worse place, right? Why shouldn't your rich uncle be able to support you against a person who, you know, ran into you with their truck, right? So there is a... so there's there's the legal question, uh, which I think he did everything right. And then there's the ethical question, which I think he did everything right. Um, uh, but you have to ask that that ethical question, too. Sure. Uh, and would you have felt different if he would have taken Gawker on with with almost frivolous lawsuits and just done death by a thousand paper cuts? Do you think it would have been a different story for you? Absolutely, because there you're not actually attempting to win. You're not attempting to have your your argument validated. You're attempting to destroy uh, to destroy someone for for something that they may have not actually done wrong. And so Peter's decision, for instance, not even to attack on First Amendment grounds because he believes that that is is sacred, but to, but to look instead at the the individual's right to privacy. Right? Is there a newsworthiness in this sex tape? Uh, or is there a copyright claim here? He, he specifically did not sue them on, say, frivolous libel or defamation grounds because he was worried about the precedent that it might set, and he didn't believe there was you know, anything wrong there. So uh, his distinction is, is, is really, really important. And, and I think you know, a, a potential hypothetical would be, what if uh, a liberal had backed uh, Shirley Sherrod in her lawsuit against Breitbart when they ran that deliberately edited manipulative tape of her yes. in, in, I believe it was uh, 2011. Mm-hmm. And I don't think many of the people who are deeply upset about what happened to Gawker, I don't think they would be upset if Breitbart had gone out of business in 2012. I think they'd be cheering it the exact same way. So uh, go ahead, follow <laughs> up. Very go interesting. Ahead. Yes, that's yeah. absolutely true. I, I, I wanted to get your take quickly on, uh, I can't remember the guy's name who actually wrote the story, um, but he, he's he been become somewhat of a, a cause celeb on the left uh, of a guy because he's not the guy, he's not Nick Denton who ran uh, sure. Gawker, but the guy who actually just did the post. He's a you know he's a lowly convoluted. Yeah. Yes, yes. He's you know and like just a you know a, a writer and he's working for Gawker, not making a ton of money. He and he was involved in this lawsuit and and he has been presented as this guy who got in the middle of this thing and he was helpless in this situation and now he has no chance of making any money. He owes like you know an ungodly amount of money uh, for this lawsuit and can't do anything about it. He wasn't wealthy. He didn't own Gawker. Can you give any perspective on that and how you see that, that went, how that went down? Yeah, so in a way, he, he's just doing his job. Like, Gawker publishes these stories all the time. It, it's so unremarkable when he gets the whole Kogan tape 
that Nick Denton, the CEO, isn't even notified, right? The case that bankrupts the company, the CEO doesn't know about it until after it's published because that's how run-of-the-mill it actually was. And so, yes, it, it, it was unfortunate that this individual, this writer doing his job, takes the full brunt of it in, in the public eye, uh, you know, during the trial, and then is held liable. Uh, the, the jury uh, says, uh, holds him personally liable for about $100,000 of this $140 million judgment. But what people forget is that months after the verdict, Peter and, and, and Hulk Hogan settle with Gawker that releases uh, both Denton and and Delario from these individual claims, and they're able to to walk free. They you know they didn't they, they they were not necessarily ruined by it. And Peter said, like, look, my goal was to destroy Gawker, not to ruin these people personally. But individuals are held accountable for yeah. their actions, and that's life. I mean, we all have choices. Uh, no matter if everybody else is doing it, we still have a choice. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so intrigued by Peter. I think he is a, I think he's a real force for good. And I think he is a, I think he's a deep and thoughtful man, um, uh, that doesn't make everything that he, everything that he does, uh, right or good, but he, he really seems to think about things. And he, um, I heard him say once, I, it's not that I, I think I'm right. I, I'm not even sure if I'm right. I just don't think other people are even thinking about these things. Yes. What does that tell you about him? He would say that even about this case, that it's often not that uh, he was right and other people were wrong. It's that Gawker wasn't even, Gawker just assumed that this Hulk Hogan case would get settled. They weren't even taking it seriously. And so Peter is a person who has theories about the world and he's willing to, as Nassim Taleb would say, put some skin in the game, right? He's, he's willing to, to throw some weight behind them and, and see what happens. And I think, uh, to me, the lesson of, of what happened and what I tried to write about in the book is that you can fundamentally disagree with what Peter did, and you can think that it's dangerous and alarming that Gawker doesn't exist anymore. But there is something to study, a lesson to learn about how this guy did it and why he did it and how he was able to effectuate the change that he believed needed to happen outside of, you know, writing op-eds or putting out a petition. You know, he, 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 he made real change in the real world where other people said there was nothing you could do about it. And to me, that's a lesson that, that in some ways, that's an inspiring thing right now in this society where we're stuck, you know, on both sides of the aisle. We, we, I think we just feel like change can't happen. And here, a guy made something happen. Yeah, when when I saw that in the the book, that uh, that phrase, um, I, I I thought to myself, that is something that uh, the the world is not even um, rewarding now. It doesn't reward you to think. It doesn't reward you to think out of the box and to think differently. Um, and it doesn't reward you to say, I'm not sure if I'm right. I just want us to think about that. Uh, and, uh, and that's really what we're missing. And the irony is that in some ways Gawker was part of that problem, right? I think one of Teal's objections to them is not just the despicable things that they did and the violations of privacy, but as the site that just sort of made fun of everyone for every mistake, every failure, every personal idiosyncrasy, they were disincentivizing people from thinking outside the box, from being weird. And weirdness is where 
innovation comes from and creativity. And we should want people to take risks and turn out to be wrong. What we don't want to do is mercilessly mock them to the point where nobody tries anything because they don't want to end up on the front page of Gawker.com or, or any website. Ryan Holiday, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I think we sold you on that story. That's a, that's a pretty uh, it's good Ryan, story. Ryan tells it well, and, and, and there's a lot in here that has not previously been reported on it. Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue by Ryan Holiday. And also, we should have Ryan back on at some point. Uh, for about, trust me, for trust me, I'm lying. Yeah, it, it is. He is yeah. a guy who has a firsthand, uh, uh, firsthand experience, really, with um, uh, with fake news. Yeah, I mean, it was really kind of his job as a PR person, uh, and he knows how it works, and it's really fascinating. So yeah, we'll have to have him back. his uh, quickly. I don't know. He, the concept of that book was that he would, you know, those weird stories that bubble up to the national media, and you're like, yeah. how do we even hear about that? Yeah. It was his job to try to get them elevated from from a blog to local media to regional media to national media to try to get attention for clients and all sorts of stuff. So he was like in the media manipulation business for a long time. And you know what? It goes to, remember the first thing that I said when we went to CNN and I said, I'm really uncomfortable with this, the ingesting of news. Oh, yeah. Because if you make <laughs> one mistake, it that is your basis forever. Mm-hmm. Uh and it's interesting because what he did was it was on a blog and then he would call the local news and say, did you see this? this, you see this on, blog? <laughs> you see this blog? And they would use that as a credible source. And then he'd go to the regional news and say, did you see this in the newspaper? And it got more credible <laughs> yeah. as it went on. Hmm. All right. When an emergency strikes, what is your first reaction? You're living up in Connecticut and uh, New England and you saw that there was an, yet another snowstorm coming. What was your first reaction? I got to get to the store. I got to get some milk. I got to leave early because we're not going to have any food. And then you go to the store and everybody is, it's, it's, it's become Lord of the Flies. Okay. Here's a really simple way to avoid all of this. You just, you just have to have a plan. Be prepared. Know that no matter what happens, you're going to be fine. I have trusted my Patriot Supply for years to help me with food storage. And it was really hard at the beginning. I mean, literally, I you know, we, oh, you got to have a big, huge, you know, 20-gallon bucket of wheat. What am I going to do with wheat? What am I going to do? Honestly, I'm going to grind that and make my own bread in case of an emergency. That's not going to happen. That's the way it used to be. Right now, this week, you can get two weeks of emergency food supply, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, one person, $67. $67 for two weeks of food, one person in your family. Get one for every member of your family right now. This is a huge savings, only $67. Call 800-200-9031. 800-200-9031. Prepare your family right now. Food is really good there's no grinding of wheat. That's surprising. Yeah. It's ready to serve. All you have to do is call or go on the website. Preparewithglenn.com. Preparewithglenn.com or call them. Can I still grind wheat if I want to? I mean, if I'm just, uh, just one of the things I like to do, is that still allowed if I order this? Oh, I, I've got a wheat grinder for you. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll That's either put you in it or give it to you. Uh, <laughs> 800-200-9031. Glenn. Mercury. 
Glenn Beck. Oh, let's see. We've got a lot. We're going to, coming up in a few minutes, the conservative case for free trade. Why does free trade matter? And we get into that coming up in uh, in just a second. Apparently, uh, uh, America also has a drunk shopping problem. A drunk shopping problem? Yes. Uh, Americans spent an average of $448 per person in drunk purchases in 2017, which seems really high. Uh, but they did a survey of 2,000 adults and found out that that number. I, I mean, it, it is one of those things. It is easier to buy things when you're... When you've had a couple, Are you, I will say that that's, that's true. It I, sounds like a, it sounds like a, speaking from experience there, Stu. Uh, I did have an interesting experience fairly recently. I went, I went to a um, a Christmas party, mm-hmm. uh, and I, you know had a had a couple of adult beverages, which I tend to do time to time, uh, but not super often. And uh, so I had a couple of adult purchases, and I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who uh, talked to me about he had just purchased a toilet light. Mm. Now, a toilet light is a light. It's a little LED light, mm-hmm. and it hangs over the side of your toilet, mm-hmm. and it has a motion sensor on it. Mm-hmm. The concept here is that when you walk up to the toilet in the middle of the night, you don't have to turn all the lights on and blind yourself. Mm. It just lights the inside of the toilet mm. in a flash, like kind of a cool LED-colored light. Oh, so, so it's you, like a disco It's like in a your disco toilet. in your toilet. Yeah, all right. Now, after a few drinks, that sounded like the greatest invention of all time. <laughs> sure. And at the party, with Amazon in my pocket, I purchased the toilet light. Shockingly, after a couple more drinks, I did not remember that I ordered a toilet light right. until I came home and my wife was like, what the hell is this thing? <laughs> now I have toilet lights and I think every toilet in the house, they're fantastic. <laughs> it was a brilliant purchase. So wait, you didn't, it wasn't just one. It wasn't like, I'm going to well, try this out. It I actually was... ordered one. Oh, you ordered one. And then it was so great, I've now ordered two more for the kids' rooms. Wow. It's actually it's fantastic. <laughs> if you don't have a toilet light, all you have you to do is drink. Life. All you need to do is drink and shop. Take the podcast of today's show, have a couple beers, then listen to this segment and you will order it. And You're it like, will sound amazing. Great, that's the greatest. <laughs> I love you so much. That's the greatest idea I think I've ever heard. And if you're really drunk, you'll have the toilet light to light up when you're heaving over uh, the, the toilet in the middle Correct. of the night later on. Correct. So it's, a good, it's positive on all ends. So let me ask you this. Uh, <laughs> conspiracy theory has uh, spread among Facebook and Instagram users. The company is tapping our microphones to target ads. Facebook says it's not. Facebook does not use your phone's microphone to inform ads or to change what you see in the news feed. Sure. Yeah, right. Um, they say <laughs> what they say what's happening is um, uh, they're, they're basically following everything that you do because you give them permission to do that. Yeah, it's basically. No, we're not listening to you. We wouldn't need to. You're telling us way more than that. Right. Is essentially their answer. Right. And hey, Google. No, you. You're not listening to us all the time, are you? See? No. She's not. I have full attention. Okay. Hey Alexa, you're not you're not listening to us, are you? Alexa, are you listening to us all the time? I only send audio back to Amazon when uh-huh. I hear you say the wake word. Sure. Oh, For sure. more information and to okay, view Amazon's yeah, yeah, I got it. Right. Stop bye, Alexa. Bye. Stop spreading your lies. Glenn back. <laughs> Mercury. Love. Courage. Truth. Glenn 
back. Right now in America, we're having a uh, uh, a discussion of principles, or we should be having a dis- discussion of principles, but it, sometimes it just turns into uh, a discussion of teams. The principles that set America up as the great changing force of the world was was freedom and the freedom to exchange with people. And it started with really, can we just can we be free to exchange between each other with the states at the very beginning? The Articles of Confederation, the reason why it was too weak is everybody had their own money. Uh, uh, People were charging different taxes and tariffs across the state borders. And we knew if we were going to be the United States, that wasn't going to work. We needed something. We needed to be able to trade with each other and just have and, and everybody will be on an equal footing. That's really one of the biggest problems of the Articles of Confederation and why we adopted the the Constitution of the United States. Trade free trade is in the marrow of our bones. But right now we're having a discussion that maybe we shouldn't have free trade, maybe because of. Uh, national interest or national security we should have tariffs here there or elsewhere and it's easy to win a trade war well what is the principle behind free trade why is this important as a conservative principle here to talk to us about that is scott lincecum he's uh he's a uh, adjunct scholar at the cato institute and an expert on free trade uh scott thanks for coming on uh, thanks for having me. Good to be back, Scott. Tell me in a nutshell. So let's start at the let's start at macro. Why is this a fundamental conservative principle? Sure. Um, so I, I think there are a, a few reasons, really, but but most basically, and and you brought it up with respect to trade among the states. Um, you know, free trade really, at its most basic, is simply the absence of government in uh, voluntary mutual be- mutually beneficial transactions that just so happen to go across borders. Um, you know, just as conservatives recoil at the thought of putting a bureaucrat between themselves and their doctors, uh, you know, you'd think they'd be similarly opposed to p- uh, putting a bureaucrat between themselves and, and their merchants, for example. Um, now, beyond that simple principle, when you then look at what protectionism, protectionism is on the, uh, on the other end of free trade, uh, you see that protectionism is a, a hidden regressive tax on consumers who are forced by government to subsidize uh, certain well-connected producers. And, you know, the only difference between a tariff and a subsidy is that the tariff money comes right out of our own pockets instead of coming out of the Treasury. And this is kind of a classic bottom-up redistribution, um, and of one that actually hurts poor Americans more than richer Americans, because poor Americans have, you know, of course, smaller budgets to stretch in the first place. Is, the, um, is, there, any dif- is there any difference between... Um, Illinois saying to Alabama, because Alabama got a new BMW plant and all the workers are going to go down there. And Illinois saying, you know what, Uh, you brought them in at an unfair advantage because you brought them in with tax uh, incentives. And so anything that comes from Alabama, if you buy that BMW in Illinois, we're going to charge you a little bit more. Right. Right. No, uh, you know, there, there's not uh, any sort of fundamental difference between uh, the border between two states and the border between two countries. Um, you know, you, you, can, you can try to think of kind of nationalistic ideas, but the fact is, in terms of kind of the economics and the principles of it, uh, you're really dealing with, with the same thing. And, and you know, so, really so, important. So Go aren't ahead. we doing that then by saying, I'm going to give Boeing a tax incentive by coming to this state? Isn't that, in a way... 
uh, a subsidy? Why does it work with the states and it doesn't work with foreign countries? Uh, well, I mean, I think one of the reasons is that um, we kind of recognize the value of the system uh, of, of the free exchange of goods across borders when it comes to the states. And we, we don't think that while we might not be thrilled with, with certain companies in certain states getting these subsidies, we understand that, first of all, their taxpayers are, in a way, subsidizing our consumption. Yeah. But second, that the, the the system itself is so valuable that it's not worth uh, destroying it just because we might not like what happens uh, every once in a while, that, that there is kind of this, this greater uh, importance to keeping the system alive. Now, when you, when you change that to international uh, boundaries, for some reason, that, that whole calculus goes out the window. And all of a sudden, um, you know, foreign governments subsidizing our consumption is a big problem. Um, and uh, we, we are far more willing to accept uh, government interference in our, our transactions um, because of these vague kind of allegations of unfairness or whatever. Now, never mind that a lot of these allegations of unfairness are made uh, by uh, the foreign producers domestic competition. And in fact, those are the guys who got to write our unfair trade laws. And those are the guys that you might uh, imagine uh, have a, a rather strong commercial interest in ensuring that we as consumers buy from them and not from their foreign competition. Hmm. Uh, there's been about th there's three like main conversations, I feel like, going around this topic. I want to ask you about each of them. The first one, though, I think has been the least covered, which is are these let's just say the argument for protectionism works let's just say it's a good idea for a moment yeah. are the circumstances with the steel industry in particular mm -hmm. even there to to justify it if it did work yeah it, it certainly doesn't appear so um so if you look at steel production over the last uh actually several decades it's pretty steady um there was of course a huge drop in the great recession but over the last um almost 10 years uh steel output's been about 90 million tons um you uh you also look at imports and imports are still only about 25 to 27 percent of the market so the u.s industry still has over 70 percent of the domestic market share um you look at the company's profits they're actually making hundreds of millions of dollars in profits right now um and then of course you look at uh you know uh, the the national security arguments here which are, are what are being debated right now mm -hmm. and you look at most of our imports actually come from our closest allies uh like canada for example or europe or japan uh these are these are countries with which we have we have security treaties i mean canada for heaven's sakes is part of the american national defense industrial base <laughs> defined by law so so <laughs> so hang on just for a second though wow. there, yeah. if, if if we play this out i mean i i you know, looking at World War Two, we had the resources, we had the factories and we could build these things. Right. If if we were down to 10 percent steel, we were only making 10 percent of our own steel. You could make the case that yeah. a country to be strong has got to have these plants. But that's not the case in this. Yeah, definitely. So, in fact, Secretary, Secretary Mattis himself wrote a letter to the Department of Commerce as was required under the statute we're, we're dealing with right now. And he noted that only 3% of current Department of Defense needs um, uh, are, uh, could be satisfied. So only 3% of total 
uh, domestic steel production could be could satisfy all of DOD's needs. So DOD only needs a tiny fraction of our actual U.S. steel output. Same goes for aluminum. So the idea that the steel uh, that we have this withering steel industry, then we can't build tanks and planes and the rest, just simply is nonsense. As as Secretary uh, Mattis himself uh, made clear. All right. Next question. Uh, pretty much every president uh, from both parties has always talked about. Uh, and and uh, many times enacted uh, tariffs on particularly steel. We've done it a million times. What yeah. were the results when we've done it? Right. The results were not very good. Um, so in a paper I wrote for Cato last year, um, I actually documented uh, the long history of America's, American protectionist failures. And steel features prominently. And if you look at over the years, over and over and over again, steel protectionism imposed immense costs on American consumers. Uh, and not just uh, American families, but also a lot of American businesses and workers, you know, manufacturers that need steel, uh, construction uh, companies that, of course, need steel. So not only did it impose immense costs, hundreds of thousands of dollars per year for any steel job saved uh, or created, uh, but also didn't even uh, lead to the revitalization of the industry. So the industry uh, still suffered bankruptcies. The industry still came back for even more protection. And so over and over again, you see that, that it just simply didn't work. And in fact, you see in some cases, the industry uh, refusing to innovate, refusing to reinvest, uh, refusing to get lean and mean and competitive again, um, and, uh, and, and instead relying on government protection. It violates the Kondrakiev wave. <laughs> <laughs> so, Scott, because one other part of this is you could argue that you could save a few steel jobs with a yeah. big tariff, right? Sure. But the overall effect on employment yeah. in America is actually negative with these things. Is that what you found? Exactly. So if you look, for example, at the, so of course, President Bush imposed steel safeguard tariffs back in 2001 and 2002. And uh, the net result was uh, a destruction of um, about 250,000 jobs, according to one report, 100,000 jobs in, in the other. I mean, the exact numbers don't matter. The fact is that you, you saw a, a net destruction of jobs overall. And that, that's just basic common sense, really, when, when especially in, a, in something like steel that's such a critical raw material. Uh, steel workers in this country are, um, are outnumbered by steel consuming workers by something like 45 to 1. So mm. it's inevitable that if you tax the inputs of these 45 to save the one, you're going to end up with more losses. And that's, of course, what happens over and over. And that's leaving out the kind of egg-heady econo economics on deadweight loss and the rest. I mean, just looking common sense at the common sense angle of it, you're going to end up with losses that far outweigh the gains. So um, let me ask you the third question, and that is trade wars are easy to win. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, yeah, the, the the sad thing about a trade war is that everyone loses. Um, you don't end a trade war um, emerging victorious. All you've really done is you end up, you're poorer. Um, in fact, trade wars are simply when both sides yell across the ocean and then turn inward and shoot their own citizens. Um, and that's really what happens over and over again. You know, as we tax 
uh, imports of whether it be steel or automobiles. We simply harm American consumers. Uh, and, you know, foreign exporters will, will get hurt, too. But uh, you're, you're taking a lot of casualties for that. And then, of course, if a foreign uh, government retaliates, which many have promised to do in the case of the current steel and aluminum tariffs, then, of course, our exporters get hit, their consumers get hurt. And at the end of the day, everybody's just poorer and worse off. Um, and when the thing finally ends, uh, there, there is no, no real victor here. So uh, I want to I take a quick break, and then I want to come back, because uh, I want you to make the case for the person who is just hardworking, is really struggling, uh, sees jobs going overseas, sees sure. their jobs not getting any better, and somebody saying, you know what, it's because we're being taken advantage of by Europe right. and China. And I want you to speak directly to that person when we come back. It's Scott Lincecum uh, from the Cato Institute, uh, and it's nobody better. Nobody knows this topic better than than Scott. You can read his. Uh, he just wrote a story for. Um, he wrote referenced the paper from Cato. You can find it. Uh, we'll tweet it out at, at World of Stew and at Kledbeck. Paying off debt can take forever, and it piles up really fast. But it doesn't have to be this way. If you own a home and you have some equity, refinancing to consolidate and pay off debt can make life a lot easier. But is it the right choice for your situation? Well, I don't know. But a great way to tell is by making a 10-minute phone call to the salary-based mortgage consultants at American Financing. These guys have access to every loan in the industry. They work for you, and they will only offer refinance options if they make sense for your financial goals. And they'll walk you through it step by step. Again, they're not trying to sell you anything. The banks are selling those loans. They're trying to help you make the best decision on which loans you should get from a bank, if any. American Financing. American Financing can review your current mortgage, look for options that lower your monthly payments, or help you achieve a better financial status. And with American Financing, it's straightforward and effortless mortgage experiences every time. It's American Financing. Call 800-906-2440. That's 800-906-2440 or online at AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing Corporation, NMLS 182334, www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Glenn Beck Mercury. Glenn Beck. Talking free trade in in layman's terms on why this is a conservative principle, why it's an important American principle, and and Scott, I want you to speak directly to the person who is is not into global politics. They look at globalism and say, "Yeah, I want to be a part of the global community," but we're being ripped off, and I'm struggling, and I feel like our jobs are going overseas, and nobody's protecting us. We can, we're playing fair. The other parts of the world are not. It's time somebody stands up for me. Right. So, you know, I think there are, there are a, lot of, a lot of responses there. I mean, the first, of course, is that, you know, I think, I think free traders generally need to be a bit more sympathetic to, to the concerns and fears of, you know, a lot of average Americans. Um, you know, we're dealing uh, right now in a very disruptive uh, economic period. It's not just globalization, though. In fact, um, the vast majority of job losses, particularly manufacturing, um, over the last few decades have come from automation yeah. uh, and technological change right. um, than, than from trade. Um, and of course, there are changing consumer tastes 
that just simply we, we, we prefer services more these days than we do to certain manufactured goods and so forth. And so, you know, there is a, a necessary amount of sympathy that goes to kind of being uh, in this very, very disruptive uh, period. Uh, but, yeah. but again, it's important to note that this isn't just uh, or even primarily a globalization thing. Um, the, the second thing to note is, though, that, that, that the, the parts of disruption that are trade-related are really just manifestations of kind of free market competition, which we, we kind of all under, inherently understand are really good, and not just good, but important for our economy. I mean, you know, the American economy is this kind of dynamic, churning uh, beast of sorts, that if you start to slow that down, or if you start to prevent the adjustment that the economy kind of does naturally in a free market, if you start thwarting all of these great things that come from free market competition, um, we actually all will end up even, even worse off. And, you know, on trade, that's not just cheaper T-shirts. Uh, it's, it's jobs, in whether it be trucking or ports or in, again, import-consuming manufacturing, in services, you name it. And all of this is, is, is overall a good thing. Um, but look, that still doesn't help the guy whose job actually did um, uh, get you know outsourced or or mm-hmm. sent abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that's that's rough. But the the again, it's it's a part of this kind of greater uh, economic uh, sure. dynamism. And and the other point, you know, oftentimes um, unmentioned is that you know if you have jobs that were literally um, that literally existed only because they were behind a tariff wall or because they were receiving a government subsidy. You know, you do, of course, have to ask the question about whether, <laughs> whether that job, whether that subsidy or that tariff really needs, should be staying in place in the first place. I mean, you know, you're, you again are kind of dealing with this redistribution idea. Should, should some of us be forced to subsidize others? Um, but, you know, look, finally, there is a, an adjustment thing, you know, something that we talk about a lot is we really do need better policies in place when it comes to helping workers, helping individuals adjust. Um, you know, we, we, we just have not updated our policies to reflect how disruptive an era yes. we have right now. Yes. And, and that, again, is not just trade. In fact, it's, it's, it's far everything. more about all these other things yeah. that are going on, and uh, particularly information technology. We have, we, and, and to have policies that are from the 1950s and 60s uh, yeah. to help workers that are disrupted, displaced in, a, in 2018 really makes no sense. We, I think there yeah. really is a, a place for, for legitimate government action, or at least reform of our systems. You know, the thing, one of the things I love to talk about, the example I love to use, is that for a long time we had a tax credit for people who were training in their same job, but they couldn't get a, that exact same benefit for training for a new job. <laughs> that so, makes n- no sense in this sort of economy. Uh, quick, Scott, let's go. We have got yeah. about 30 seconds left, 40 seconds. One quick sure. question I have for you. I read the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, to say, the Congress shall have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations. Yet we were talking about this as if the Congress can't do anything to stop these tariffs. How is, what's the process of this? 
Right. So because Congress has over the years delegated so much of its trade powers to the president, uh, you're you're really looking now uh, that the Congress would have to to act, would have to pass some sort of legislation, and I guess it would have to be veto-proof legislation. Now, that said, there's history for this. Under this very same law, Congress in 1980 actually did pass a uh, a law uh, against its own, a president of its own party. And, and then overrode the veto. So there is potential for action, and Congress does have the constitutional authority to do so. But more broadly, broadly we really need to have a talk about whether yeah. the trade powers delegated to the president still make sense uh, in today's economy, Scott, but not only come. in today's economy, with today's president. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Adjunct scholar uh, at the Cato Institute and probably the leading authority on trade and why free trade is something we should all be a champion of. Glenn Beck, Mercury. <sighs> you know, what's wrong with us? Seriously. This is the Glenn Beck program. Stu, I don't know what's wrong with us. We just talked about steel and we were not wearing a hard hat. I don't know if you've seen. All of the people on location, all of the reporters that are talking about steel, they're all wearing hard hats <laughs> that is now. True. And I will it. say I did roll my sleeves up for that last segment did you? if you weren't watching on television. Yeah. yeah. I'm that. wearing a denim shirt today. Oh, okay. I could have had a hard hat. I could have looked like a man. Today. We were pretty hard workers here, lots of calluses yeah. on our hands. Uh, um, this is Natasha, difficult work. I need at least two hard hats uh in the studio at all times in case we need to talk about trade. Tariffs or steel. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay, good. All right. Pat, Pat you're not wearing your, your hard hat I just either. want to mention, though, that I, I've got permanent calluses on a couple of my fingers, and I have no idea why. I've never done an ounce of hard work in my life. <laughs> I don't know where they came from. <laughs> you, <laughs> you actually have permanent calluses? I, I mean, do, yeah. Do you really? I've, always had I've calluses known you right for here. 40 years. Yeah. The only hard work you've ever done is like... I pushed when a few car, buttons. When car doors were heavy and you had to open them. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if the butler didn't do it first. Yeah. Right. Butler. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't I, know. My hands are baby soft. I've never I know. I, it's, I don't know why I have them. I, I go out. I do. You know, what's really proud of them, actually. What's, what's really funny is you go out to you go out to farm or something. You do something and you don't have to do it mm-hmm. and you love it. And you're like, this is great. You know, hard work, man, it just really makes you feel good. And you just, it just, it just means something. But if you actually have to do it, it's awful. Yes. The minute, the minute mm-hmm. I would have to farm my land, right. I love, I love being the farmer that I am because I'm only up and I'll plow the fields and I'll, you know, I'll cut the hay and everything else, but I don't have to. Mm-hmm. And the minute I say, eh, I'm done, I just turn the tractor off, walk away, go, I'm done for the day. <laughs> That's the way hard work is fun. Well, I think people uh, that listen to this show recognize that I'm the real American here. Yeah. You know, you guys both yeah. started in radio very young. Yeah. Uh, now, I had, uh, I, I've had difficult uh, manufacturing type jobs. Uh, I, I, Have you? I was an assistant spot welder for a summer. Assistant spot welder? Oh, yeah. Assistant really? spot welder. Which basically wow. meant, it, like, if you think you're like a spot welder, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a big sheet of metal, mm-hmm. and it's sitting up on a table, mm-hmm. and then, uh, but they need to kind of move it. And what I would do is I would get under the table, 
and they would do the they would do the spot weld above my head, and then sparks would fall uh, on me. Right. That was basically the job. Did you have to have a hard hat? I I did. I actually wore oh my a hard gosh, hat. You had a job with a hard hat. But I mean, I, it, it sucked. <laughs> I hated it. It was a hundred degrees, and there were sparks mm-hmm. in my face all but the wait, time. But wait. If you were doing that because you were going to make a metal table yourself. Right. You'd be out there and be oh, like, yeah. this is the greatest. That's what people are like, oh, I want to restore old cars. Yeah, unless you have to restore all cars <laughs> yeah, every day, yeah. you want to restore old cars. When we actually had no money to buy cars and they were breaking down all the time, <laughs> we didn't want to restore it. <laughs> we wanted a new one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> do, you remember the, do you remember the days when, when you could just reach behind the instrument panel and you could unplug the check engine light oh yeah and and you would do that because (laughs) i'm not fixing it and i'm tired of looking at it so i just unplug the damn thing that's the best solution (laughs) yeah now that now the check engine light comes on and you're like oh crap yeah well now you can't even have access to the battery anymore it's all covered at least on my car it is it is all of it it. all of it yeah my, my you don't put i've had to jump you know my car a couple times which is about as deep into car repair as i can go and uh, <laughs> that's not car repair it's not? okay no uh but now the the two places you put the thingies you know mm-hmm. what i'm saying I, again, mm-hmm. i'm getting technical here if you're not a car yeah, person the places you, you put the thingies the places you put the thingies yeah. are not next to each other on the battery anymore i noticed there's that. one uh, like in one place and then you got to mm-hmm. reach down underneath the car to a completely different section of the no, engine i don't block. like that Absolutely there might be ridiculous. things down there that could cut your fingers off that's what i think <laughs> right <laughs> you never know call, that's why i go on my phone i just go uber yeah. and then, yeah. and then yeah. i don't and i just don't drive for a month or so yeah uh, my you know, car doesn't work. When uh, when Tanya <laughs> when Tanya bought me, she bought this old truck, 1957, uh, and it's I mean the engine is huge, but it's it just looks like there's nothing to it. You know what I mean? It's not. Mm-hmm. It's it's all open. Yeah. You can get to any side, and the mm-hmm. truck is so damn big that you could probably almost stand next to the engine in between. You know, inside under the hood, you could almost stand in there. And so when we first got it, uh, you know, I know nothing about cars. And so Rafe and I were looking at it and we, you know, he jumped up on the bumper and he was looking into the engine and I was telling him, you know, I think these are the cylinders in here. I think this is, yeah, I'm pretty sure. And these are the spark plugs. And then we got underneath the car and we were just laying there and we were just looking up at it. And he was like, what's that? And I'm like, no idea. (laughs) <laughs> what's that i have i think that maybe turns the wheels i'm not really i don't <laughs> i'm not really sure it's we a ended defibrillator up, we yeah. yeah we ended up spending like 40 minutes just laying underneath the car uh and tanya came out and she said what the hell are you guys doing and i said we're just learning about the truck she said neither of you know anything about it get up but there was something about laying underneath the car and pretending that we did mm-hmm. that was that Kinda was cool. good yeah but i contend if i actually would have had to fix that truck and there was nobody else to fix it it wouldn't have been a fun experience with me and my son Not i would have i would have been i would have come out with a finger that was bleeding and I would have thrown, not that wrench. <laughs> I would have been saying things at that level to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not, I mean, people glorify, you know, like sort of romanticize, I guess is the right yeah. word, of manufacturing jobs. And it's like, well, you know, anyone losing their job, you don't want to lose your income, right? It doesn't mean that we should glorify manufacturing jobs as this thing that we want the entire economy to be based on in the future and make sure all of them return. For instance, I'd rather have it, I mean, I think most people, 
would rather have, if they had a choice between a manufacturing job and a job where they flap their fat mouth for three hours on radio, they're probably going to pick this one. Why? Because mm-hmm. you don't have to freaking get dirty. You don't have to get sweaty. You don't have to know what the hell you're doing. There's lots of benefits of this game. And two out of the three have no calluses <laughs> on their hands, and the one who does has no, <laughs> idea, no idea how they appeared. <laughs> <laughs> this I mean, is a really good thing, actually. Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. I like Manly it. Manly men talk <laughs> on that, <laughs> yeah, that program. But you know what's interesting <clears throat> is, is if you look at the stats that we went over yesterday, what is it? 60 or 80% of jobs now are white collar in America. Mm. That is a huge difference and something that we all would have said is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, sure. That used mm-hmm. to be, they used to say, oh, we don't want these low paying jobs. Now they're saying, because manufacturing jobs has a really good political sort of connotation to yeah. it. You're talking about things, because it's like what you were talking You're about. You're talking about people who, men who actually look like men. Yeah, men who, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's and it's a great, it's also though a, but their uh, jobs people complained about, right? Yeah, people when they had them. them. Yeah, I mean, my I dad worked had a in a yeah. factory my whole life, and you think, oh, dang it, I'm sorry. Right, like you get it was right? something. I mean, yeah. it was. They complained about it, and there's a nostalgia related to it, just like you were talking about fixing cars. It's like we kind of like <laughs> that. You get your hands dirty, you get in there, but it's a it's a picture. It's, yeah, it's, not it's a in job your head. You want yeah, your yeah. whole life. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you wind up with you know long term problems. Why do you think unions are always complaining that they need? larger uh, healthcare plans and better pensions and things. It's not just because, you know, there are legitimate health problems that arise from many of those jobs. They're difficult freaking jobs. My grandfather didn't have a finger. My, my grandfather had a finger cut off in, in mm-hmm. a job that he had. And it was just like, Oh yeah, I just lie. It was no big deal. I just lie. I mean, that's the way it used to be. <laughs> I, have, I know. No, no, you know no, what I mean? <laughs> I was out and I was out with the tractor and we were, I don't know what it is, but you got a spiky thing that goes off the side and it kind of fluffs up the <laughs> fluffs up the hay. <laughs> sure, that's not what it's Farmer Glenn. Is that you? Yeah, it's okay. me. It's mm-hmm. me. So we were fluffing the <laughs> fluffing the hay. You're fluffing the hay, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you have it's no idea what you're talking about. Absolutely right now. Okay. no idea. I know why we do it. I just don't know what it's called. Okay. Okay. So we're fl- <laughs> we're fluffing the hay. <laughs> You sound like every and liberal on guns right now. I know, right? I know, I know, I know. Good thing is there's only about five farmers left in America. So, uh, so, but it got it. Uh, some I can't remember. It's been a few years. Something got uh, tangled up, or oh, because the alfalfa it can mm-hmm. it can start to get caught up in this. Like fluffer, hey, the fluffer, fluffer thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fluffer. Okay. This is not a good All conversation. Right. So, so you know, you get out. And you're immediately looking at it and you're like, okay, I've got to, but it's stopped. And if you don't, if you don't turn the fluffer off, Mm -hmm. it's just jammed and you've got your hands and arms in there. And if the fluffer starts to fluff again, it's going to rip your arms off. That's why farming is one of the most dangerous jobs you can have. It is. And when you, you know, when you're, (laughs) when you don't have a farm hand that you go, Hey, the fluffer is stuck. (laughs) Uh, and then he gets out and then you're logically just sitting there going, I don't know what to do, but you see him reach in. That's when you say, "Uh, should I turn the fluffer off? And he's like, you didn't turn it off. Now this is a very specific hypothetical situation. Right. But it could happen. I'm, I have no idea if what you're saying makes any sense, but I cannot hear it in the context you mean it. I cannot. And it's just not, it's not helpful. All right. Pat, um, mm-hmm. rescue us from, from this. I'm excited about uh, Sunday night. Are you guys going to watch the OJ uh, confession? If oh, I remember. Yeah. 
If you I guys don't, have to call, remember. Yeah. You have to call me. I won't remember. Oh, no. you have to remember. It's 7 o'clock Central, so 8 Eastern. And this is the one that was done, what, 10, 12 years ago? When they wrote the book, If I Did It, Here's How It Happened. Do we know why that book wasn't released? Yes. Yeah, because the, uh, the Goldmans were, like, were pissed. And okay, they so, stopped it. And they were like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be making millions of dollars off our kids' murder. Yeah. Um, so they, it yeah. became such a controversy at the time. And so whoever it. did it in the first place, I think it was Fox, wasn't it? They shelved it. And so now they're bringing it back out after all this time and putting and it on the air. And they're putting it on the air now because, ah, nobody it's, cares about the Goldmans anymore. It has, is that it's, what it is? Yeah. It's been long enough now. Yeah. I guess. Okay. So, um, so they're going to play it. And he goes through this hypothetical and he starts speaking hypothetically, and then all of a sudden it turns first person, and it's chilling when he does, uh, because he starts talking about his friend Charlie uh, that came over to his house, and he said to me, in the words of OJ, he said to me, OJ, you're not going to believe what's going on over at Nicole's house. And he said, whatever is going on, it's got to stop. Do we have the, do we have the audio of that? We uh, have the, I think we the have trailers, the, the trailer. Yeah. Of here, it. here it is. Play a little bit. In 2006, O.J. Simpson gave a no-holds-barred interview, including his gripping account of what might have happened that fateful night. For over a decade, the tapes of that infamous interview were lost. Until now. Lost. I'm going to tell you a story you've never heard before. It takes place the night of June 12, 1994, and it concerns the murders of my ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her young friend, Ronald Goldman. Forget everything you think you know about that night, because I know the facts better than anyone. <laughs> well, bet yeah. you do. I bet you does. This yeah. is one story the whole world got wrong. Does he confess? You be the judge. O.J. Simpson, the lost confession. I said Sunday, lost. March 11th. It was lost. It was sitting in some <laughs> vault someplace, and somebody was licking their chops, going, "Oh my gosh, is it time yet? It's time now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Now that he's out, they can uh, they can actually play this. I guess. I mean, it's 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 amazing because he does do it in a first person. Mm-hmm. But wasn't it, that the point of the mm-hmm. book? Yes, but what a weird point. It's one of the strangest things in American history. Well, because he starts I, talking like. If it happened, here's how it might have happened. But then he switches to, I did this, and he said this to me. And it, it's a chilling kind of switch into first-person speak where it sounds like he's talking about what he did. Yeah, I mean, can you What imagine, he actually did. Can you imagine going to someone who, who was accused of a crime and his freedom you know, is dependent on the idea that he did not commit it? And going to him and saying, hey, would you write a book describing a hypothetical way that you'd commit the crime you're accused of what person what what would possibly motivate you other than the fact that you did do it Mm -hmm. and you believe you wanted to confess for some reason either money or for uh to get it off your chest but you knew you couldn't do it without going to prison this is your way of confessing i just i just want to also point out it's worse than that it is imagine your wife has been killed Mm -hmm. a brutal Mm -hmm. brutal killing you are busy looking for the killer on people, every golf course in America. People <laughs> think that you've done it. Yeah. What would possess you? And you would be, uh, you, that, you would say, that's obscene. Of course. Yeah. If I, if I remember, if I remember, I am going to definitely watch this on Sunday night. <laughs> if you remember. <laughs> well, you might be out fixing old cars uh, in, the, in the garage. Well, I'm not fixing. Exactly. Was sitting under them. Yeah. You need to put a flat screen underneath the car. So I've watch already that. got one because <laughs> the car doesn't work because I have no idea how to fix it. Simply safe. 
The home security company that I have worked with since they had only 10 employees, and they have transformed now into the fastest-growing home security company in the nation, now protecting over 2 million people. They just released a brand-new home security system, the all-new Simply Safe. It has been completely rebuilt and redesigned, and they've added new safeguards to protect against power outages, downed Wi-Fi, cut landlines, bats, hammers, everything in between. The all-new Simply Safe, redesigned to be practically invisible with powerful new sensors. Now, what's really remarkable is they've spent all of this time and money and 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 redesigned this system into state of the art smart technology. And you still get it at a fair and honest price. Twenty four seven protection is only fifteen dollars a month. There is no contract. You own the system. You're in complete control. It's smaller. It's faster and it's stronger than anything they've built before. But supply is limited. So visit simply to order right now. In fact, you go to the website. It's just Take a look at how much money you will save by not having a contract and not having wired security, but instead keeping your family safe the simple way with simplysafebeck.com. Simplysafebeck.com. Glenn Beck Mercury. Glenn Beck. They think that they may have found Amelia Earhart. And don't get excited. She's not doing well. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think she was alive. <laughs> well, I didn't know. I just, you know, cats on the roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, new scientific study shows that uh, bounds, uh, the bones found in 1940 on a Pacific island now belong to Earhart. Um, uh, they said that in 1941, these were not her bones. They now have done it again. And uh, they've said that these are, it looks... I, I don't know the full story. We'll have to get this tomorrow. Um, but they found a, a woman's shoe. They found a sextant uh, there. Uh, they found herbal liqueur. Uh, and, you know, this is a better ending for her, I think, being a possible castaway on this island than hmm. the other theory is, is that she was captured by the Japanese and tortured to death because they thought she was a, a uh, an American spy. But we'll give you the full story tomorrow because it's it's pretty remarkable. Glenn Beck, Mercury.